Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. So we're stuck on the side of the river here. That first day, we wake up and we load up the truck, find out the battery's dead, and now we're just sitting there. Well, here comes the Bolivian army. It's a little Jeep with a bunch of kids and AK-47s. And you know, I'm looking at the gear. Every fly rod is $1,500. I'm wearing a Rolex, which I put in my pocket. This guy's got a Rolex, that guy's got a Rolex. I'm like, oh, this just isn't gonna end well. You know, I, it just sucks. And I'm just sitting there going, well, you know, it's been a good life, but I think this could be it. Howdy folks, I'm Rufus Wakeman, and this is the Tom Rowland Podcast. Hey guys, welcome to the show today. If you are deeply ingrained in the sport fishing world, you've probably run into Rufus Wakeman somewhere on this planet. He's been all over the place. If you aren't deeply ingrained, but somewhat interested, then you're going to love this conversation that I just had with Rufus Wakeman. Rufus is a guy that has been almost anywhere you've ever heard of. He, and, and lots of places that you haven't. He knows everybody, and he is a remarkable storyteller. Today, <laughs> on this, on this uh, conversation, it twists and turns and goes in every different direction from, ca- trying to, from hearing about how he has tried to catch a billfish slam on fly to Nile perch to almost getting killed in Bolivia, tattoos and what kind of tattoo he would get And then I learned all about fads in Costa Rica. If you don't know what fads are, they are fish-attracting devices, and they are changing the world of sport fishing. Let's just say that. And um, Rufus gives us a pretty much master's degree level of uh, history and kind of 
what these things are all about. He goes on to talk about Guatemala and fish, fly fishing for billfish and techniques to hooking sailfish and world records. And I just had a great time. I didn't really have to say much. Rufus is a great storyteller. He talks a lot and he tells a lot of great stories. So stand by, buckle up, get ready. My friend, Rufus Wakeman. Rufus. Yeah, man. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for doing this, man. Sitting My down. pleasure. I'm anxious to hear some stories. Oh, I know yeah. that you... Uh, Got a few. You, do you? <laughs> oh, Where yeah. do they start? Oh, God. I don't know. A long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> <laughs> no, what? I'm born and raised here in Florida. I grew up here. Uh, grew up down in Palm Beach and uh, started fishing when I was about five. My grandfather took me out on a charter boat and I caught a 29-pound amberjack that he mounted for me and an old Fluger mount, and I had it my whole life until maybe, I don't know, 25 years ago. It just fell apart, and yeah. it saw, you know, the whole skin mount, so I got rid of it. But that sort of instilled a passion in me that became a career and a lifestyle, and I've fished almost, you know, five days a week ever since, except when I was in, you know, boarding school in Connecticut. Ah! <laughs> but, you know, we all have our cross to bear, so to say, and... Boarding school was mine. <laughs> yeah. Did you, were you, was that voluntary or were you sentenced? It was semi both. It was, <laughs> it was, uh, you know, I grew up in Palm Beach and, and Palm Beach, Florida at that point was, uh, you know, like a cocoon, you know, there was a bigger world out there. I knew it. And, uh, having spent a lot of time in Wyoming as a kid and stuff like that, my mother used to take me out to a ranch there and I started fly fishing when I was about nine years old tying my own flies and what part of wyoming a little town called saddle string wyoming wow. between buffalo and sheridan actually we went to a ranch called the hf bar ranch which is the second oldest incorporated dude ranch in america second to the eaton ranch i believe it is that was i mean hf bar is around 1904 and the Eaton Ranch, I think, was the late 1890s, 1898, 99. The Eaton Ranch became the first actual dude ranch in, you know, the country. Wow. And uh, so I, you know, spent my summers out there and horseback riding and trucking through the woods and hunting arrowheads and tying dry flies and flipping them up on streams with Wright and McGill four-weight rods. And I don't know what kind of reels they were, but probably Wright and McGill or <laughs> Eagle Claw or something like that. And uh, and so that was a part of my childhood. And we lived in Palm Beach, not far from the water and the ocean. And I'd walk my dog up there before school and chuck Zara spooks and cook Jackson Barracudas in the morning before school and then ride my bike to school and always, you know, had a passion for the sea. Then I went away to boarding school in eighth grade and my mother remarried this gentleman. My father had died several years prior in, in the late sixties. So 75, my mom remarries this gentleman from East Hampton, Long Island. And he was a real serious mariner and had spent 30 years going back and forth from East Hampton to Staniel K. Bahamas on, in a small boat, a little 10-knot Norwegian double-ended little cruiser, 30, just going over 35 there for, feet. Just going over there for fun? or To get away from the cold winters up there. Uh -huh. So it had take him a good solid month and a half to get down there. 
and then a month and a half to get home, but he did it. And it was, he was actually married to Sonia Henning, the Olympic ice skater. The, oh, I believe yeah. she was Norwegian. Okay. And the boat was built in Oslo, Norway, commissioned by her and brought to America in, I want to say, maybe the late 50s. And I don't have a lot of Winnie's history. My stepfather, I just, he passed away in 1980 and the families moved apart. And I just, you know, never really got all of the necessary information I really would have needed. But he was a wonderful man, Winnie Gardner. His family founded, was one of the first families to settle the East, East Hampton, Long Island area, the eastern end of <laughs> Long Island. Hence, Gardner's Bay, Gardner's Island, Gardner's Lane all named after the family. And I mean, Gardner's Bay is a large body of water and Gardner's Island is a, you know, it's a gigantic island as far as, you know, a near shore coastal island. And, uh, you know, beautiful heritage and history of that part of the world, which is now, you know, the land of actors and actresses right. and rock and roll stars and unbelievable traffic in the summer. There was actually somebody who wrote a book. Every weekend... New York would exit us from New York out to East Hampton. Well, once you got to Manorville on 495, which is the Long Island Expressway, and you'd go over to 27, it's bumper to bumper all yeah. the way to Montauk. So there were a bunch of back roads that we knew about. And some guy's daughter decided she'd write a book on these back roads and she published it. Shortly thereafter was having death threats because now... Nothing was sacred. And all these quiet roads literally would have Porsches going down them at 100 miles an hour and, you know, Ferraris and big pickup trucks and everybody trying to beat the scene to get out to wow. Long Island, Southampton, <laughs> East Hampton, Bridgehampton, West Hampton. I mean, all of it. And it just became a total profanity enter here show. Right. And so, <laughs> so, so that, that just shot it. That, and that, now it, East Hampton's just a cluster Blah, blah, blah. Expletive, deletive. And it's, uh, it's uh, I mean, but it's still a cool place. And, you know, if, if you know some of the back roads, you can still navigate a little bit. But don't even bother on the weekends between Labor Day and Memorial, Memorial you, Day and Labor Day. Do you spend any time up there? No. I am going there in the middle of September, the end of September this year. I, I have a meeting in New York I have to go to. So we'll go out, my wife and I to East Hampton to visit our dear friend John and Susie Reed. Her father was Stan Waterman, Susanna Waterman. Her father is the preeminent videographer of my generation. Wow. He's up there with Jacques Cousteau as far as he, he actually invented underwater videography. Wow. Stan Waterman did. He did the movie with Peter Gimble, Blue Water, White Death. Yeah. And Stan Waterman invented the first underwater housings for, you know, the old big eight millimeter, 16 millimeter video cameras and has a wonderful, you know, legacy that he's leaving behind. He's got three great kids. They're all water oriented. His one son, um, Gordy is a videographer. His other son, Gar no, Gar is the videographer. Gordy is the sculptor who does marble squid and marble shells and nudibranchs. And then Susanna, she's got a company called Sea Beasties, and she does laser cutouts of foam foam uh, sheets and in sort of exotic fish. Nothing real, yeah. but, you know, they're fish. Alligators and, and snakes and 
all kinds of weird, crazy stuff that pops into her head. She puts it in a computer, CADs it, hits the button, and it laser cuts the stuff, and then she paints it in these far-out oh, wow. colors. And, you know, they're eight feet long, six, seven feet long, oh, so that's they're cool. pretty cool. Yeah. And a very talented bunch. So we're going to go visit them. And then there's a guy in uh, Connecticut, a uh, striped bass guy I've been dying to meet, Ian Scott Devlin. Okay. He's been doing this for years. He runs a 17 Lake and Bay, and he's just, you know, full of knowledge. He's into birding. I'm into birding. You know, he's just got a lot to say. So I, I've, I've contacted him, and if you can get to Orient Point, great. If I have to come to New London on the ferry, I'll do that, you know, but I want to spend a day with him and yeah. go fishing and see his world. And <clears throat> What's your birding look like? Well, the birding up there. Well, just your, I mean, do you keep a life list? No, I, no, God, I don't keep a life list, but I'd be up there. I mean, I've seen a whole pile of them. I just saw the coolest bird. You can probably tell me what it is. I may have to look it up on, on the internet to tell you what it was, but it's a stork in Bolivia. It's white with a black head, and it's, it's the second largest bird in South America, okay. right behind the the condor. I don't. Well, the condor, man. I Dude, mean, I've thing, only seen. This thing yeah. had a nine foot wingspan. Yes. Its wings were about this right. wide across, and so we were shooting pigeons and right. ducks. Right. And the the guy pointed it out, and it came over these trees, and then then glided along the water. And I'm sitting there looking at this thing. I'm like, that's the biggest bird I've ever seen. Yeah. I mean, it was it was a huge. That's bird. cool. I don't know what it would be offhand. I'll show it to you. Right, um, right. Uh, I don't want to. Yeah, there's a bunch of beautiful storks. I've I've been I've seen two in Africa: the saddlebeak stork and the yellow-billed stork. The yellow-billed stork, and then in Australia, the jabiru. 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 Well, is, that's is, what it's called in in South in, America. Uh, okay, too. It's, it could but be it's the same some, bird. Yeah, a similar one. The it's jabiru. white with a black pink black wing, head. pink pink legs. Yeah, uh, I think so. Yeah, I'll red, show you a red, picture reddish, of the ones that yeah. we saw. I mean, the jabiru. We're, we're fishing in Hinchinbrook, Australia. I'm fishing with Dave Bradley and my son when he was 14. This would have been five years ago. And you know, the weather's really crappy. It's cold. It's July. It's their winter. Newsflash opposite seasons you know <laughs> and i should have known but you know they kind of warned me when i left to go you know when i was booking these trips it was sort of like well you know mate it's uh not really the best time of year for barra i'm like <laughs> I, i'm gonna be there i don't I, I don't have a choice in this you know we fished that hinchinbrook area which is a heritage you know world heritage site it's like t-rex is going to come out of the bush at any time right. i mean it is just spectacular it is so beautiful when we were there it was not very fishy i mean we caught a few oxide little herring which are like mm -hmm. our baby tarpon yeah. yep and we caught some little gts i mean when i say little a little bit bigger than the palm of your hand oh you really know? yeah but my kid it was all about him yeah. you know and then we had one good weather day the sun came out it was blue skies boom man we were in the barra you know my son got three or four i had a couple on fly and when they say take a fly and throw it into the stuff Man, I wouldn't send a bird dog into that yeah. stuff. It's so thick. And you take these flies with these giant weed guards on them and throw this double rabbit strip, zonker strip. Uh -huh. It's got two zonker strips, and you throw it up in there, and you, you strip like one inch at a time. It's a real slow presentation because you want that fly to be in their window for as long as possible. And he's, you know, down there under a log or under a bunch of branches, 
And, you know, he's going to, it's going to require a little effort for him to come out. He may see it, but if you move it too quickly, he's right. gone, you know? What fish did you think that that, that the barramundi reminded you of the most? Well, it's like our snook. That's what I thought. It's centropome. Let's see. That's lattes calcarifer. We are snooks are centropomus undecimalis. And um, the Nile perch are all the three members of that perch family. Yeah. And that's what they're all sort of, uh, you know, the same critter. And the Nile perch and the and the barramundi look similar. Yeah. Except the Nile perch has much smaller scales. They get way bigger. They too, get three, four hundred pounds. Yeah. yeah. Right. And most of them are gone now. They've fished them. Lake Victoria used to have tons of them. Now I think you go to uh, like Angola or Sudan, not Sudan, but I think it's Angola where they catch them. Hmm. Steve Ryan, who's a buddy of mine on Facebook, I've never had the pleasure of shaking the man's hand, but he is a global angler, and he fishes all over the world, Bolivia, China, South America, you know, um, Brazil, you know, uh, Guyana, um, um, Guinea, not Guinea-Bissau, but what's that country down there with all those big piratacu, the big catfish? Ghana or, yeah. or something like that. Guiana. In South, Guiana. Yeah. Right. In um, South America. And he'll be in, he's a lawyer in Chicago and he'll be, uh, you know, up in Minnesota catching 40, 50 inch muskie, which is, you know, as big as they get, <laughs> yeah. maybe 55, you know, 60, it would be the, you know, a really big one. But, uh, I mean, a guy catches four pound bluegill. He just doesn't <laughs> catch little fish, you know. He went to uh, the Maldives on a fishing trip, and you know every GT he caught that he took pictures of was like fifty pounds and bigger. Wow, you know it's just. Uh, the How do you guy, think the, he does that? Just enough research. <clears throat> well, I think he's um. Well, for one, his lure is constantly in the water. Yeah, you know that's. I mean, if you really want to excel at fishing, you've got to. You ain't gonna catch him from the couch, and if even if you're sitting in the boat, if you're luring in the water, it ain't gonna happen. So. Steve probably, you know, he's probably pretty intense, sort of like I was 20 years ago. Yeah. You know, back in my, you know, 30s and stuff, I could stand on a boat all day and throw a fly in Brazil in 105 degree heat. Didn't bother me a bit. I don't really think I could do that anymore, you know? Yeah, well, I was going to ask you what it looked like for you to fish for five days a week for 30 years. Like, that's how you introduced, introduced your career right yeah. away. What did that look like? Great. I mean, you know, it was, well, it wasn't, it was, you know. What kind of fishing was it? Here locally, snook, tarpon, sailfish, dolphin, and yeah, five days a week sometimes, but I'd average probably 150 days to 175 days a year. You know, I mean, I, I, I'm involved in a bunch of other stuff, so would definitely donate a lot of time to fishing. And, and after a number of years, it just like anything, it becomes a job. And I looked forward to that job. Pretty much every day. I mean, I really loved it. I loved waking up. I've never really, out of all the clients I had, I had one guy who was a little sketchy, but we we, we patched it up by <laughs> noon. You know, I mean, it started out rough, but by noon we were laughing and high-fiving each other and all that. And I've really never had a bad guy on the boat or a bad individual on the boat. And and people don't get it, you know. You know, they'll get on the boat. Like, I do a lot of CCA donations, yeah. IGFA donations, you know, cancer. Come to me with a cause. I'll give you two nights, three days at my fish camp and a half day fishing. You know, just whatever you need, you know. And um, wounded warriors, stuff like that, you right. know, we donate right. too. And, uh, and uh, but I mean, I had a guy who, uh, I don't know, a few years ago, maybe three or four years ago, 
I donated a trip to the ITFA, you know, two night, three day stay at the fish camp, half day fishing with me. The guy calls me. We set it all up. Boom, boom, boom. He's going to show up. He's got his dad and a couple of his good buddies or maybe one good buddy and a brother or something like that. And, and you know, we go out and he's like, well, you know, how long, what are, what are we going to catch? And I'm like, well, hopefully snook, sailfish, maybe some tarpon, big jacks, kingfish, dolphin. He's like, really? We're going to get all those? I go, well, if everything goes as planned, yeah. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, this is, you got to realize it's a half-day donated trip. You know, a lot of guys are going to be back at the dock in four hours. It's over. Right. Well, they were really good people. We were having a really good time. And, well, I lost track of time. So at 8.30 at night, I got him back home, <laughs> 14 and a half hour a day. And the guy gets off the boat and looks at me and goes, my God, I've never had a better day fishing. And I can't, you know, 14 hours, Captain. Holy cow. And I go, well, you got to realize something. I want to be here more than you. And I was here yesterday, <laughs> you know, and I can't wait till tomorrow, you know, and but that's how it is. You know, yeah. I mean, you know, Mother Ocean's a beautiful thing. You never know what she's going to show you. You know, every day is different. May look the same to most people, but uh-uh. There's a lot of differences. You know, you go through the inlet. All right, what's the wind doing? How much weed is there? And God, the weed's been terrible the last few years. <laughs> Just, I, I, I'm sorry. I want to take this moment to apologize to all the anglers on the East Coast of the United States, Bermuda included, and the, you know, St. Thomas and everything. Because years ago, I think I prayed for weed once. <laughs> and my prayers are being answered, and I'm really sorry, everybody. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> you got it. Yep. What is this? Uh, what's your billfish uh, career look like? Well, years ago, I you know started fly fishing for billfish back in the late '80s. Actually, yeah, late late '80s. I got my first one, first sailfish on fly fishing with Captain Skip Smith on the famous Madam and the Hooker mm-hmm. in Dakar, Senegal, Africa. Yeah, and we set a world record over there, and caught a pile of fish on fly and really didn't know what we were doing. And, you know, I had, so, you know, the hooks were too big and we had to file. I was using sixes and seven O's, six O's and seven O's, 77, 66. It's a hook you put in a value, yeah. you know, but we didn't, there was no chemically sharpened hooks at that point. There were no owners or gamakatsus or daiichis or even mustad didn't have anything. So we had to file them all down and we created these really long points and we, you know, went over there and we were lucky to set the 12 pound tippet record on Atlantic sailfish. And, um, it's been beaten several times since then, but that's all right. And then, uh, went to Costa Rica in, uh, January of 89, back with Skip and company on the Madam and the Hooker and caught Atlantic or Pacific eight and four pound records on sale. Four pound. And yeah. That that's was pretty a, impressive. One right for there. one. I'll never throw it again. Dude, that's yeah. pretty impressive. We thought it a fish, a fish, fish fly on the, four pounds. Well, it was, a, it was a one hook fly and I just flopped it and the fish came up and slashed, got hooked above the eye and the head, came in the boat, literally jumped up in the air. You know, went down a little bit. Winch, he was windshield wiping right on the surface. So skipped through the boat in reverse, backed up. And then, you know, both Scott Levin and Greg Mercurio, the two mates, are leaning over the transom with gaffs. And this sailfish comes up right in front of the transom, right behind the transom, hits Scott Levin in the face with his bill, removes his sunglasses from his head. Wow. Bill rashes here and here. I mean, his eye, literally, I mean, we thought he was going to turn around and his eye was going to be hanging out. Wow. And uh, it was all a pretty scary couple seconds. And they stroked this fish in midair and brought it into the boat. Wow. And the fish just went bonkers, man, and just busted everything up. And 
you know, kicked all the stuff around, the buckets and everything went flying. I mean, 76-pound sailfish. Wow. And then, you know, so I said. a record? No, Harry Gray. You know who Harry Gray was? No. Harry Gray was a guy uh, from the Keys who moved down to Costa Rica, and it became his mission in life was to catch billfish on fly. He caught some world records in St. Thomas. I think he had the 16-pound and the 12-pound record in St. Thomas on Blue Marlin back when an American with an American flagship could kill a fish in, mm. you know, below 99 inches. Now you can't do that anymore. You have to go to a foreign port and not be on an American uh, hailing vessel. Right. So Harry did, he caught a bunch of fish there, then went to Costa Rica and caught a bunch of fish there and, and lived his days out in Costa Rica, but he was a great guy. They, they had a, um, a tournament, the Billy Pate tournament mm -hmm. became the Harry Gray tournament. Okay. And it, it's no longer held in Costa Rica. Now, Jake Jordan, who you yeah, probably yeah. know well, Jake, uh, it's now the Jake Jordan fly fishing tournament for billfish, which is held at Casa Vieja in Guatemala. Okay. And I actually won it last Did year. Did you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations. Funny story. The year prior, Jake talked me into fishing this thing with, well, my buddy, Jed Dempsey, who I'd been to Casa Vieja a couple of times with said, Hey, why don't we fish this tournament? I said, you know, Jed, I'm just not a big tournament guy. It kind of takes a little something out of it. You know, we, you know, you put that pressure yeah. on and, and now it's not really, you know, there's a little bit of stress involved, you know? I want the most of my stress to be like, well, it's 10 minutes to go on the last day. Maybe I'll catch one. <laughs> you know, that's as stressed out as I want to get. <laughs> I really don't want to listen to, oh, God, it's a tournament. Oh, man, where are the fish? Come on, captain. Do your captain stuff, you know. And, <laughs> and uh, so I, uh, so we, you know, the first year we were going to fish it, I end up coming down with this 20.3 millimeter kidney stone oh, in my wow. left kidney. So that hits me. Now, I had sort of thought something might be wrong for about a year, you know, but, I, you know, we're, I'm a guy and you know how guys are. <laughs> hey, let me just drink a gallon of water and, you know, all right, it doesn't hurt anymore. Great. Far out. So, you know, two days before Christmas and whenever it was two years ago, this thing blows up, man. And I mean, I'm laying on the couch and this pain starts coming on and it starts coming on and it's ramping up and it gets to about almost childbirth. <laughs> and I figure, all right, I better go to the hospital. Something's really wrong here. So I go to the hospital and they get me in and I'm, you know, I'm like standing there. I'm ashen white. You know, my color's gone. I'm holding on to the counter. I'm like, oh, geez, man, I'm not going to make it. And the guy goes, just sign your name and give me your phone number and we'll get you a bed, man. And they triaged me. And in five minutes, I was in the back in the ER and they hit me with some kind of pain pill. Then they said, go pee in the cup. I went and peed in the cup. It looked like balsamic vinegar. Wow. I mean, it was dark red and chunks. I mean, it was horrifying. Ugh. I'm looking at this going, oh my God, there's really <laughs> something wrong, you know? So I give, so the guy, the nurse comes in the room and he's looking at me and goes, well, were you able to? And I go, yeah. And it's really not pretty. And I mean, I picked up the sample and went here and the guy goes, holy crap. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, that's not good. He goes, wow, look at that. That's extraordinary. And I'm like, oh, great. This is just getting better by the second. You know, <laughs> the pain was pretty much, you know, I was down to about a three or a four from about an eight. 
Yeah. So I was surviving. So then, you know, at, this is two days before Christmas. They make an appointment with a, you know, urologist or whatever. And I go see this lady. She turns out to be like a foreigner. And, uh, you know, she pulls me in and she reviews my chart and she goes, okay, uh, well, you know, we're going to have to schedule something here to try to blow this thing up that latropsy or whatever they call where they, they go in and then they, they hit it with a like sonic sound wave and it, and it shatters ultras. Right. right. So anyway, so I go, yeah, but I'm supposed to be in Guatemala to fish (laughs) this sailfish tournament. And she looks at me and goes, ain't happening. (laughs) You're not going, I'm actually not going to let you go. And I'm like, really? Well, how the hell are you proposed on stopping me, lady? (laughs) And she goes, well, just imagine being in Guatemala and this thing blows up. You know, I mean, what are you going to do? And I go, hey, kind of got a pretty good point there. So I sent my son and they started out the first day. My son catches a blue marlin on fly. He's 17 or 18 (laughs) at the time. He gets a blue, but he caught a black marlin in Australia when he was 14 on a fly rod. So, uh. You know, he's a pretty good fly, fly angler. He's a good all-around kid. And, uh, you know, mariner. He's a good mariner. Yeah. Hell, I let him take out my Jupiter 31, so he better know his stuff, you know? <laughs> and um, so he gets a blue marlin on day one, practice day. Day two, three, and four, which are the tournament days, they see like four sailfish each day, and, and they don't even get one. And they, I think Jed, the, the older guy, got one, his you know my partner yeah which i sent my son i mean i paid for this trip i ain't gonna get my money back from jake you know four right. four days out right. it ain't gonna happen so i sent my son because i wanted to at least you know have him go experience something and it worked out well because he had dreadlocks <laughs> at the time and i kind of said you know you might want to consider cutting them you know after all you are going in an international forum you're going to be fishing against people from all over the world and you're kind of representing me and you know, I'm, you know, people know me and they like me and I've got a pretty good reputation in this fishing world. And I just think maybe you might want to consider cutting your hair, son. And he did. <laughs> he did. I was so proud. How of long him. were his dreadlocks? Oh, down, down to here, man. It I took mean, years yeah, to grow them. pretty much two years. Yeah. And then he just thought, he just whacked, okay, yeah, he I'm said, just going to cut them off. Yeah. You know, they were kind of straggly and didn't really look great. They weren't real Rastafarian dreads, you know, like that. Yeah. They were like little straggly things that sort of look like, God, the kid looks like a rat, you know? Yeah. So he did it and I'm proud of him for doing it because he didn't have to, Wow, you know? And did that, you ever think that, about growing them back or that was it? He thinks about it, but now I've told him, you know, you, you get one chance to make a first impression and. Today's society is a little more lenient than when I grew up, so you could probably get away with it. But just remember that you get you get about five seconds. Yeah, the answer is yes or no. I I got five seconds, and if I look at you and see this, I'm probably going to say no, unless you know I'm some really cool hip dude who's really understanding. You know, which a lot of people are now. Yeah, but you know, you know, once again, five seconds. Yeah, there's that first impression. Standards have have loosened for sure. Absolutely. But face tattoos are coming on. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, you can have a gargoyle on your cheek and yeah. still get the CEO job yeah. as long as you own the company. Well, yeah. You know? <laughs> well, I think I think that you get the CEO job because you own the company. Right. But exactly. The face tattoo is becoming more and more prevalent. Like right. I was talking to my wife about it. I'm like, in a few years, 
you're going to see more and more of these face tattoos. Yeah. And to me, that's like, that's that's when you just say, I'm never getting a real job. I'm right. doing, I'm I'm taking my own road. And that's right. cool. Right. It's yeah. like burn the boats. Boom. This is it. Right. This I'm is it. Going, I'm not leaving myself any right. alternative. Exactly. I'm going to be true to who I believe that I am. Right. You know? I mean, it's, I don't have any tattoos. My daughters have tattoos. My wife has no tattoos. At least the last time I checked, and uh, but uh, yeah. I've always, you know, if I was a weightlifter and I was uh, like a lot bigger than I'm, I'm a big guy. I'm six four, you know, three hundred and thirty, forty, fifty pounds, depending on what I had for breakfast, and you know. So, anyway, I've always wanted to do a sperm whale coming over one shoulder and a giant squid coming over the other shoulder and having them clashing right on my belly. Nice. <laughs> With the tentacles going down my legs, you know, and uh, other areas in that region. But uh, I had a friend of mine uh, who had a squid tattoo on his forearm, the late, great Kent Smith, known as Kunta, Skip Smith's brother. Kunta had a, uh, a squid tattoo on his arm that was pretty darn impressive. Yeah. Oh, it was great. I mean, it ran from here all the way up to here. And the tentacles came out and kind of came around and wrapped back up on his wrist here. These were the two big, you know, the, you know, the grabbers. And it was badass, man. It was a great, it was a great, great tattoo. So ever since I saw that, I was like, wow, that would be cool. A sperm whale and in full color too. Yeah. A big gray sperm whale over one shoulder and a big red squid. You know, It'd probably only take about 60 hours of 60 hours and a lot of blood and a lot of vodka and rum, <laughs> you know, <laughs> basically, I, was, I just want to be put under general anesthesia. Yeah. And then you can do whatever you can do it all in one shot. If you wanted to, we, we were having this, I was just in Bolivia. We were, we were hunting down there and we were having this conversation about tattoos with my two boys and my nephew and my dad. <laughs> and I thought. If I was to get, if I was to get a tattoo, I would go with just the old battleship, old yeah. school battleship, right. right across the chest. There you go. <laughs> yeah, the USS there, whatever. Pull that mic up. Okay, there, there we go. go. There you go. But anyway, so Bolivia. I got a good story about Bolivia. Yeah, something told a great me. Great story about told Bolivia. me that you would have a good story about yep, the Bolivia. Yep. So years ago, we get a phone. You know, Pat Ford. Yes, Pat Ford's a dear friend of mine. We've been buddies for over twenty years, and fished around the world together from the Galapagos to the Seychelles to Africa and just have a lot of good times together. And, and Pat calls me and goes, Hey man, I got this line on this river in the Bermejo river in Bolivia. You know, this is before cinnamon lodge, whatever that lodge is. And there was nowhere in Bolivia. This was pre that with Martin Carranza. Okay. You know, Martin? No. He's a guy who used to, he's now a guy down in Miami and Martin's a good guy. I don't think he, I think he had our best interest at heart, but politics in these countries works weird. Yes. So we all fly down to Bolivia or down to uh, Buenos Aires. And then you got to get another flight up to Jujuy, Venezuela, or um, Argentina from, from Buenos Aires. We got this other flight and then there's a six hour drive from Jujuy to Bermejo and you know we're like I didn't I wasn't really sure of what the whole ETA was and the uh-huh. plan I knew we were going to go into Bolivia but I didn't think we were going to go into Bolivia at like nine or ten o'clock at night 
and it's all lit up like daylight. They got lights and checkpoints, and you go through an, a pre- preliminary checkpoint, and then about 500 yards or 1,000 yards later is the actual border. Wow. And, you know, when the guy goes here, when Adolfo, I'll never forget him because he was our driver. He was in charge of, like, the school buses in Venezuela or in Argentina, in his hometown in Argentina or Bermejo or wherever. I think he was Argentinian. He had about a pound bag of coca leaves, and that's all he did was chew these coca yeah. leaves. And I mean, of course, we all tried it. It's pretty disgusting. It did absolutely nothing for me. Yeah. You know, but um, he's noshing away on this stuff, and he'd turn and laugh, and his breath smelt like new mown grass. It was the <laughs> weirdest thing. It was like, God, you're, you know, you smell like you've just been out <laughs> reaping hay, you know, sowing hay, and yada, yada, yada. So we go. Up there, we stay at this eco lodge. Then the next day, we go into town because Martine's got to get the paperwork and we have to get supplies. And they've got this cooler. It's just like big aluminum box with like styrofoam just sort of taped to the inside. Yeah. It's 100 degrees, man. I mean, I'm looking at this cooler going, I just don't think this is going <laughs> to win. It ain't a Yeti. Put it like that. It ain't a Yeti. And we would have needed a, the biggest Yeti they made for all of us for the seven days. So we go up there. It's You're on a road that's got about enough room for a big truck or maybe two really small pickups to pass each other. And, you know, it, it's like 45 miles from where we are to get to where we need to be. But the road goes like that. Yeah. It takes like three and a half hours. And we didn't get stuck behind a cane truck going, but we got stuck behind a cane truck coming out. Mm -hmm. So we get in there and the concept is to go into the El Cajon Park Nacional. Now, right before this trip, my wife insisted that I buy a sat phone. Because she didn't have a good feeling about it. She said, I usually know a lot more about where you're going and what (laughs) you're going to be up to. And I got nothing on this trip. So you're buying a sat phone. Well, I bought a sat phone, an old Global Star sat phone. I still got it somewhere. But Global Star system went away. And then when some war broke out in Iraq, they, they ramped it up again. We get to the El Cajon Park Nacional. And we go in. And they pull out some kind of paperwork and they show it to the park, the guy at the little house that's got absolutely like one chair in it and no beds and the husband and wife sleep on the floor. And this is a good job. This guy gets a dollar a day, you know, not 25 cents or 50 cents like the cane cutters get this guy. He might've even got two bucks a day. So he looks at the paperwork. And it's from the Buenos Aires Anglers Club. And they have some palapa hut in this park that their club uses when they come up there fishing. And Martine had apparently been there not too long prior to this. And we're looking down on the river, and you can see 30-pound Dorado busting. Wow. And, I mean, I am frothing at the bit to load up a fly rod and go. And from what Martins told us, it's game on in the park. But outside the park, there are no Dorado because the public, they fish for them. And at this time of year, all the big ones are up in the park because it's deeper, slower water to do their, you know, making little Dorado thing. (laughs) And so we get denied. So, you know, obviously out come the Ben Franklins 
And we're like fanning a thousand dollars at this woman and her husband. And it turns out to be her. She is no, 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 we're not taking the thousand dollars. I'm like, this is like five years salary here, you know? Yeah. And really you're that honest and you're good for you, honey. You're the most honest woman South of Miami, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And no, they deny us access to the park. So we go out of the park, go down the road and pitch camp on a beach. We're sitting there, we set up tents and yada, yada, yada. And then, you know, we sit down to dinner and the, you know, most of the ice is melted in one day. Right. So all the meat is now floating in this cooler (laughs) and all the drinks have meat residue, (laughs) fat residue on. So everything's oily and greasy and it's, uh, and so we have dinner and then the next morning we wake up and the battery's dead in our vehicle. Meanwhile, Adolfo, our driver, he took off in his truck to go back to Bermejo to try to sort out the paperwork. Right. You know, and then he comes back the next day with a no-go. And so we're stuck on the side of the road, you know, the, you know, the river here. So that first day we wake up and we load up the truck, find out the battery's dead. And now we're just sitting there. Well, here comes the Bolivian army. Oh, no. It's a (laughs) little Jeep with a bunch of kids and AK-47. And, you know, I'm looking at the gear. Every fly rod is $1,500. I'm wearing a Rolex, which I put in my pocket. This guy's got a Rolex. That guy's got a Rolex. I'm like, oh, this just isn't going to end well. You know, (laughs) it just sucks. And I'm just sitting there going, well, you know, it's been a good life, but I think this could be it. You know, I'm in Bolivia. Everything I've heard about Bolivia is rough. You know, that you'll end up in jail eating rats or you'll get shot. Right. You know, and one of the gentlemen, the helpers, the mates or whatnot, he goes up and he's a big jovial guy. And this guy says all the right stuff. (laughs) And these guys drive over. And they come into camp, they open the bonnet, the hood of their truck, they remove their battery, they give, they jump our truck, you know, because no one has jumper cables, so right. they literally have to take their battery out, give it to us, hook it up, start the vehicle, diesels will run without a battery, you know, you don't, yeah. you, you don't need that. So we ran it, and we charged our battery. We never shut the damn thing off all day. <laughs> but we went fishing. Steve got a uh, fish on fly. And then later that evening, we went to another section, you know, seven or eight pound Dorado. We were supposed to be catching them 30, 40 pounds, you know, 20, 30, 40, whatever. And we had seen them and it was, we threw the water till we were blue in the face, got one on fly and pat forth to a spinning rod later and caught one on a lure. (laughs) Then we went back to camp that night and basically told everybody we're out of here. We're going to mutiny. We're done. Yeah. Ted, one of the guys had. 300 bug bites on each arm. It was 102 degrees in the shade. You know, the, the, the walk from where we were dropped off fishing back to camp was just shy of hell. You know, I mean, I'm a big guy. I'm not really Mikhail Barishnikov. And some of the, uh, like, rock climbing and stuff I had to do with a fly rod in my mouth yeah. on a vertical wall to get the 150 feet to the where now I'm on a beach again. I should have probably just gone in the river and wallowed downstream like a manatee, you know, but I, I chose to go the hard route and, and I mean, I made it, but, oh, it was a rough go. And that's, you know, so we, we mutinied and packed our gear the next day and flew back home. But 
It was an adventure. Is that the worst trip you've that ever taken? That is by far the worst trip. I've. Thank you, Martin Carranza. <laughs> but no, Martin's a good guy. He's a great guy in Miami, and and we all we all laugh about it now. But it was when it was going down. It was it was pretty crappy, you know. What comes in second place? Probably my second trip to Australia, where I sat at the dock with my son for five days before we could even go fishing. It was the weather was so weather bad. Was the bad. wind was just blowing thirty every day. And we're in a 20-foot skiff. I mean, there's nowhere to hide from it. Where were you, you trying know? to fish there? In Exmouth on the far oh, yeah. western, nor- northwestern coast. Yeah, I've heard of that. I've yeah, never, it's pretty epic there. fishing there. Yeah, that's what I heard. It's actually, in all reality, we fished, we, we sat there for five days. Then we fished nine days. We had two, blue mar- two black marlin bites, never got a fly in the water, and I was fishing in a 20-foot boat in seas that, no, should have never been there. And wow. I look back on it, you know, the eagerness, that was part when I was trying to do the Royal Slam on fly in a year. So I had to go back. I had to go back to Australia the next March to keep it within that year, you yeah. know? And same boat. It, it was just same, place. same boat, same place. And we did it on day four. You did? Yeah. I mean, uh, Martin Arost- Mar- Mar- Martin Arostegui went there, or Martin Arostegui. Marty Arostegui went there, and he got it like in the first hour of the first day. And and friggin' uh, um, Roy Kroniker, he went, and he got his like in the first hour of the first day, you know, something like that. And then Marty was there. He didn't get another shot all week because the wind went to hell. Really? Oh, yeah. I mean, you're right there. It, it's a tough place to fish. But when it's on Exmouth, Australia, it's probably the best fly fishing destination saltwater on the planet. Wow, because that's where, got, uh, that's where April Vokey's been going. April Vokey and Jono Shales are really good friends. Yeah, April Vokey, she's a dynamite gal. Yeah, but she's a British Columbia steelhead. Right, right, something yeah, like but that. She yeah. married a she married an Aussie. Right, I think. she married an Aussie guy. So that's yeah, when she, they've been going. That's she goes down going. there and goes and fishes with Jono. Yeah, yeah, because I met her at the Patagonia booth at ICAST like three or three years ago, and I see her name tag. And I go, April, Rufus Wakeman. She goes, oh. And I go, we got a good friend, Jono. And she's like, oh, come and give me some love, you know, and gave me <laughs> a big hug. And I never met her. And Jono's, Jono Shales is like just, I mean, God, he's just a super guy, South African guy. And he loves April. He's like, gosh, darn it all. Too bad she's married, mate, you know. And <laughs> yeah. Good on her, you know. But she's a great gal and one of the ambassadors of fly fishing for women. And, Certainly. You know, a really great, a great, and you know, ambassador for the sport. Yeah, absolutely. You know, her and Meredith McCord and Rebecca Red and, you know, Dottie Ballantyne and Jean Duvall, these women who had hundreds of records years ago. And Meredith's on, you know, Heather Harkavee and. All these gals are just really super, super gals, wonderful ambassadors for the sport. And Heidi, Heidi Newt, bringing a lot of other gals into it. And, you yeah. know, it's, it's fun. Dottie, you don't have to Dottie be a big. Dottie and I got our, got our first one in Australia. We were fishing. Dottie Valentine? Yeah, yeah. We were fishing way to the north on a, on a, on a trip and um, got a, a queen fish. Nice. Yeah. And that was the, that was the beginning of her whole oh, really? record thing. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. yeah Cause really I know cool. she fishes with RT a lot. Yeah. She's got like a hundred records lot, or yeah. something she, like that. Yeah. Over a hundred. Yeah. For yeah. Sure. Yeah. You know, yeah, she's done great. So I had bouncer on this podcast and he talked about, he told me the story of Marty Rostegi catching the, the sword on yeah, fly. Right. And, uh, um, casting. Right. Two so, bites in the first 30 minutes and catches the second one. Right. So where's your, where, 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 what, what all have you caught in pursuit? I've caught of every slam? billfish on fly, but the swordfish. I did it all in 11 months. I, I, I had eight species in 11 months. 
And then I couldn't, I just couldn't get the swordfish. I came home, I fished, you know, several nights. I actually, April 11th was my last day for that calendar year. And I left, we fished that night. And then the next day I went to Guatemala. I literally came in my driveway at 5 a.m., packed some gear, grabbed some clothes and jumped in a truck, take me to Miami to fly out. But I fished that last night, you know, that I had that calendar year started on April 11th. So I probably would have hooked it on April 12th. But since I left port on April 11th, I did just, I mean, there's nothing I could do about what's when it the, turns what's midnight. What's the motivation to, to tackle that kind of a, of a challenge? I mean, that's a pretty, that's pretty significant. Yeah. And I mean, I, you know, at that point, the only fish I had, I had a white marlin, I had a Pacific and Atlantic sailfish. When I decided to try to do this, I had been to Exmouth with Jono uh-huh. and, and my son, and I had caught three black marlin on, you know, bubble leaders. Mm-hmm. We did an IGFA it. So then I'm thinking, you know, okay, I think we can do this, you know, and, and I went and then Nick Smith invited me to Costa Rica and to, to fish with him and Chip Schaefer on the old reliable. And we went out to the fads, you know, I caught a blue Marlin in April with VJ Bell in the Dominican Republic. Then I went with Nick in September. Now I was either, I was going to go try to do the fads if I, you know, would pay for it. But Nick called me and said, yada, yada, yada. Back in like 2000 or 2001, Nick called me and said, you know, I want to, uh, I've caught billfish every way there is to catch them, but I want to start fly fishing for them. Mm -hmm. And what do I have to do? I said, go get yourself three Able Fives and some Biscayne fly rods, because that's really the big stuff that we have, or Sage 14 weights Mm -hmm. or some 14 weight back in 2000. And he did it. And as I hung the phone up, I sort of said to myself, God, I wonder where that's going to go. <laughs> two years ago, two years later, he had 550 in one year. Wow. The billfish, he's got over 5,000 close to it. Wow. You know, I mean, they got 50 striped marlin in a day. He's got 18 blue marlin in a day. You know, 18 blue marlin in a day. That's They a raised good 106. Day. And Dang. Chip said, that's conservative. If I did a loop and the a fish popped back up, I just called it the same fish. But that happened 10 times. You know, it could have been a different fish. I don't know. But I just called it the same fish. So, okay, there's 75, and he does the loop, and another one comes up. He goes, that's 75 again. I'm just going to leave it at 75. Hmm. But some of the fad fishing, that fad fishing, I'm, I'm leaving on the 12th, taking my wife down there. We're going to go visit Arnal because we've never been to the volcano in Costa Rica. We're going to go up there and hang out for a few days, then go down to Capos and get on the hooker. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, Skip won't be there because he'll be in Isla Maharas with his wife. He promised he'd take her whale shark seeing, sightseeing, and whale shark swimming, and which is cool. But damn it, Skip ain't going to be there. But Skip, Skip even says, he goes, hey, my captain's got his thumb on the pulse better than I do. So go for it. For, for somebody that doesn't know what a fad is, tell them how they do that. All right. A fad is a fish aggregating device, and it can be deployed either on the surface or below the surface. These fads in Costa Rica are all below the surface. They're between 80 and 120 miles offshore on these seamounts. The surrounding water is six to 7,000 feet deep, and these seamounts come up to within 1,500 feet of the surface. About 10, 11 years ago, some wealthy folks that and, you know, hang out in Costa Rica and sport fish had gone out to these, you know, 20 years, 
people have gone out to these seamounts and, you know, they'd catch five or six or eight or 10 blue marlin a day, which is really epic blue marlin fishing. You know, I mean, anywhere in the world, you catch two or three blue marlin in a day or four or five. Once you get over, start seeing double digits, you're getting into fantasy land. Yeah. So I believe it was the Schwest family out of Louisiana and they got a pile of money and they decided to do a little experimenting and they built these big fads with, you know, 5,000 pound blocks of concrete. And, you know, they had a, they got a barge and, you know, cranes and 1500 feet of cable because these seamounts come up to the surface. So they'd put all this cable on the boat and they'd go out there to these fads and they would, you know, the, they would deploy these blocks of concrete with the proper amount of cable to have the permanent underwater float stay about a hundred feet below the surface mm-hmm. to 120, 80, whatever. But you know, it's all done. They, they, they'd swage this cable on the boat so that they were really close to the right measurements and they deploy these things. They cost about 10 to 15 or 20,000 a piece. It's a lot of stuff that goes into it. And then they throw divers over and the divers go down to this permanent float, which is like a 10 foot tall scuba tank. And they attach a top piece, a top shot to this fad, which is a float with streamers coming off the line. And the, yellow, the little juvenile yellowfin tuna and skipjack just load up on these fads. And the blue marlin come in by the hordes. And just to give you an idea of what it did, it threw the Billfish Foundation's numbers out of whack. Because <laughs> everyone had a predetermined notion of what the blue marlin populations were. Well, these fads shot that all to hell. Because, you know, they're seeing 100,000 fish in a, in a year. Wow. I mean, you know, you go out there, you got, you know, boat A, boat B, they go out there and between them, most fat trips are two to three days only. Well, in three days, when you raise 80 fish, you know, or raise 150 fish or raise 200 fish or raise 40 fish or 30 fish or no fish, but you know, the numbers greatly increased. Right. And you know, some, some one, I think one boat in the beginning of all this had like 600 fish in, you know, six or seven months or whatever. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it really, everybody kind of started really paying attention. You know, you talk to Nick Smith, they were in the Dominican Republic and chip calls Nick and goes, Hey, you know, there's something happening in Costa Rica. I think we need to go see it. And, you know, it was all on the QT to begin with. Not a lot of people were talking about it. Apparently, one captain down there sold a bunch of numbers. Mm. He'll never be allowed back in Costa Rica. He's not, I think he's halibut fishing in Alaska now. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I was thinking, you spend, you spend ten dollars or $20,000 to put one of those fads down, plus yep. all of the, what goes into it. Right. I would think that that would be incredibly coveted. It uh, is. And you're putting it, right. there, and I'm imagining that they're putting it at that depth, so you can't see it from above, and you you really can't. I mean, it's all numbers. You know, it's a GPS on the planet. You know, you you poke, and you depending on the current depends on. Am I even going to find this thing? Right. You know, I mean, if the current's steaming, it doesn't steam much in the Pacific. It's not like the Gulf Stream. We can't really put fads out here because the Gulf Stream's so fast. When when I go live baiting offshore, if the, if the conditions allow, I toss out a mobile fad, which is a big giant orange float with a 20-foot flash pole on it. 
and I just troll in circles around this thing all day, and it works. I mean, I've caught a pile of dolphin doing it, yeah. and I really don't think I'd have caught those fish if it hadn't been for that fad. And I mean, this thing, you know, I drop it 40 feet below the surface. Vertical structure offshore is a lot more attention-getting than horizontal structure. Mm. Like a big giant tree floating up, you know, upended, where you might have a tree that sticks down in the water 50, 80, 100 right. feet. Right. Fish are going to come to that a lot faster than they're going to come to floating structure right. that's just horizontal. So vertical structure works, and that's why these fads are so incredibly effective. Yeah. Hawaii has them in the form of a giant buoy. You know, they got these giant buoys offshore. There's, you know, the ones right off of Kona, and then you go down to Millilee. There's the W buoy or whatever it is, UU or the something like that. It's mm -hmm. in that uniform. Hawaii, they, they have everything sectionalized. There's like kilos, you know, Lima, Zulu, uniform, all these zones that mm. people are fishing in. And during these tournaments, they got to report what zone they're in. Mm. And so it's like right now, the firecracker and all those tournaments are happening in Kona right now. And it's pretty cool. You know, all these, uh, all these guys out there crushing these blue marlin. I mean, it's great. And unfortunately in Hawaii, they kill a lot of fish, but yeah. that's, you know, that's sort of their right as Islanders to do so. No, the fad fishing in Costa Rica is to all you people listening out there. If you haven't done it, I highly recommend it. It is about the most fun you could possibly have fishing for blue marlin. You're going to see more blue marlin there than you're going to see in your life. Wow. And I got three trips scheduled coming up here in the next What's two weeks. What's the time of the year? Right now. Yeah. Summertime, yep. It's good up till October, I've heard. But, I mean, they've been crushing them right now. They're getting 20, 30 fish a trip. Wow. You know? That's incredible. Those are the guys dragging bait or live baiting. I'm going to go out there and throw feathers at them. Yeah. And, you know, if we catch, if I catch three or four fish or five or six fish in a three-day period, that's great. I'm thrilled. You know, I mean, through techniques that Jake and these guys in Costa Rica, uh, Guatemala, see, Guatemala really set the bar so high for the fly fishing technique journey. Uh -huh. You know, because we used to throw floating lines or running lines or, you know, all this sort of stuff at these billfish. We didn't, you know, I, I just take 40 feet of a fly line and cut the running light to 40 feet. So I knew that I had a 40 foot fly line and I only need, you know, I don't need a weight forward or, uh, you know, bonefish taper. I don't need any of that right. chucking a chicken. When you throw the chicken at a blue marlin or a sailfish, you know, you got a fly that's a foot long or eight inches long. It's a bunch of feathers tied to two hooks. It weighs a bit. You just got to fling it. Right. You know, it ain't got to be pretty. Just make sure you don't hook yourself, you know. And anyway, now through some of the light tackle techniques where these guys used really heavy wire and cable hmm. on like four and six and eight pound and 12 pound. Because the cable sinks, yeah, keeps the fish coming up. He huh. wants to rid. You're pulling him down. If you pull something down, he's going to want to go up. If you pull him up, he's going to want to go down. Right. Right. So we're throwing a 600 grain fly line, a little shooting head, and we're throwing that. And when you start backing up on, the, after you get through the first run, and that billfish sounds, now you put the boat in reverse and you go backwards. And you're basically winding in slack line. Right. 
but that allows that 550 to 600 grain fly line to sink below the fish, therefore pulling him down ever so slightly. Huh. And he just wants to stay near the surface now. So he comes up within about 10 minutes, starts jumping again, you know, wears himself out a little bit. He's dragging that heavy fly line through the water. And, you know, we're catching 150, 200, 250 pound blue marlin. We're getting a release boat side in 15, 20 minutes. Wow, that's incredible. I've never spent more than 20 minutes. And that was on a 300 pounder. You ever run over the fly line? Like if it's uh, going straight down like that? No. No, it's nobody. We're all using bright yellow packing and neon green. You know, that Berkeley big game Mm -hmm. green mono is a shock. We use 80 feet of that. And then to the, and Jake Jordan was really instrumental in coming up with all these formulas and stuff because he'd go to Guatemala. And, you know, the mates in Guatemala are sorry, all you American guys out there, but you got to really up the bar to keep up with Nico and Henry and, Sebastian, these mates at Casa Vieja Lodge, mm-hmm. there's no finer mates on the planet. Is that because of the numbers that they have? The there? number, the numbers of billfish that they see in a in a in a day can be more than other guys see in a year. Right? You know, I mean, they might see a hundred sailfish in a day, or eighty, or seventy, or sixty, or forty, or thirty, or you know, I've never hit it when it's like that there. I fished there four times in Guatemala. You know, my best day might be, we've seen 25 or so. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I should have been here last right. week. You know, the age-old yeah, story. I've heard. You know? Some people but, come back from there. They've never uh, been on a fishing trip in their right, life, yeah. and they just crush it. Right. And, I mean, these lodges are beautiful. They're safe. They're, the boats are some of the Rybovich's, Merritt's, Game Fisherman's, Billy Knowles, Stoplers, Contenders. I mean, some of the finest boats ever built. Whitaker's. Some of the best custom boats ever built on the planet are down there in Guatemala just waiting to die, but they maintain them meticulously. And there's something about fishing on one of these old wood boats that's like the finest kinds, you know, a Whitaker built in the 80s or whatever, Mm -hmm. 40 foot, just wonderful, you know, and the game fishermen's are beautiful, the merits. You're fishing on the boats that started sport fishing you know especially the whitaker i mean kurt whitaker was building boats in the third mm-hmm. you know and uh you know merits and ribovich's uh, you don't even need to say anything about them those are the two creme de la creme classics of all you know and stopler and billy knowles are the stoppers actually a billy knowles hall but finished out by stopler and then the billy knowles boats that are down there and it's just you know but these crews they rig ballyhoo. They rig lures. They It's all similar to what we do here. They don't fish with dredges. So maybe our guys have them beat on the dredges. But if you ask them to fish dredges, believe me, they're ramping up quick. But the thing that sets them apart is all those guys can do IGFA fly. They can rig a leader in three or four minutes. Wow. And that's two bimini twists, a huff nagel, boom, all to code and ready to go. Hmm. And they do it like that. Wow. And we used to always throw double hook flies. Now the big schools go into single hook flies. So it's all becoming pretty, it's evolving. It's still evolving. And people have been like Pat Ford set a record in the seventies yeah. fishing in, in Venezuela for white Marlin, you know, and it's, and Bob Stearns and um, Webster and, and Robinson. Hmm. One of yeah. the guys in the sixties was Stu app. Yeah. You know, I mean, Stu app has a record. 
He's got the longest standing saltwater fly rod record, 1964, a 58 pound bull dolphin on 12 pound tippet fly. Wow. Now, I've tried to beat him once and I had my tippet and we saw a dolphin, but I never got a shot. I have a current record that has stood for this April 30th. It will be 20 years. Wow. What is that? No. Yeah. It'll be 20 years. Uh, no, 30 years, uh, 53 and a half pound bull dolphin on 15 pound fly, wow. 16 pound stood for 30 years. That's a really good, it's fish. a great fish. And, um, caught that in Isla Mujeres, Mexico with captain Will Dixon on a 46 merit to Jody huh. Lynn. Wow. And, um, but Stu Apps record, that's like a fantasy. I would like to try to beat that record just, and I'd love to do it when Stu is, Stu is alive just so. I can go give him a hug and give him the recognition he deserves. And Stu, I took your, you know, 50 year, 60 year record or whatnot. And I beat it. I'm really sorry, but I had to try it. But you got to go to Panama to do it. He, he caught it in Panama Yeah. and Panama probably down at Tropic star has probably the best run of 60 to 70 pound dolphin on the 80 pound dolphin on the planet. Really? Wow. Yeah. That's, that's where it's going to happen. You're not, you might be able to do it in the Bahamas, but you're going to go through a lot of fish. Yeah. You know, every big dolphin that comes up, you're going to throw at them. Right. You know, and I don't know if you could do it there because of the sharks, you know, the sharks have gotten so bad everywhere in the Bahamas that you might be in three or 4,000 feet of water. It just doesn't matter. Yeah. You may not get eaten by a bull shark, but an oceanic white tip is going to find you. That was our experience there last year. We It was the sharkiest place I've ever seen in my life. It's just, I mean, my son was at Nippers. Yeah, love Nippers. <laughs> yeah, great place. Getting back in the boat, he cut himself on the propeller and, and had to go to Marsh and get four stitches. So he's at Nippers. He's got his foot hanging off the side of the boat. He's just bleeding like a stuck pig. I mean, it's pouring out of him. And finally, they got a pressure bandage on him and got him over to the other side of the island where he could get in a ferry boat and go to Marsh Harbor with the adult that was there with them all. Yeah. And Bob took Marlon, my son, over to my son's name is Marlon. <laughs> <laughs> took him over to uh, Marsh Harbor to get stitches. Meanwhile, some other kid gets bit by a shark and nippers. Really? Probably because of all the blood in the water from my son's foot. Wow. No, no kidding. So Marlon's sitting in the clinic, and here comes this kid with his arm all torn up. And it's like, you're the son of a bitch that was bleeding over there. And Marlon's like, hey, dude, sorry, but, you know. <laughs> bleeding. <laughs> what are you going to do? Shit happens, you know. Oops, sorry. Yeah, it's okay. You can, yep. you can say whatever you want. Um, so, so what's next for you? What you got some big trips planned? Well, yeah, my wife and I are going to Costa Rica to go look at the volcano next yep. week. We're leaving Friday on the 12th. And then we got 13, 14, 15 up in the mountains of Costa Rica that I've never really spent any time there because I'm always offshore looking back at land, yeah. which is how I really like it. <laughs> Meanwhile, she becomes an authority on the land and all the indigenous stuff, every plant and tree, every butterfly, every bird, she comes away with all that knowledge and, and then, you know, drills it into my head. And I love it because I'm into all that. But if I had my choice... I'm yeah. going offshore. Yeah. You know, I'm going to go fishing. I mean, so we go on, to, and then the 16th, we got to go to Capos, get on the hooker, go out for two days, come back the 19th. Then my son flies in the 20th and we go back out with Pat Ford and I and my, and my son 
And my son's going to get another blue marlin on fly. I'm just going to take pictures of him doing it. I don't care. Yeah. And paddle catch one, and then paddle shutter bug away. And then I come home the 24th. I go back down the 30th and do another three-day trip. And that's with Chris Sheeter. The, with my son is with Chris Sheeter, and, and then we got two trips with Chris Sheeter. Cool. And he, he chartered a boat or rented a boat down there. So it's a 50-footer. It's going to be comfortable. I got to get Pat Ford on this podcast because we've run into several of his friends in doing this, including Bonefish Fred in in Bimini. Yeah. He just had the nicest things to say about Pat Ford. He you just, know, Pat Ford is, he's a real pioneer. He's been doing this for a long time. He's got records that'll never get beat. He's got a 68-pound cobia on eight-pound fly. Wow. Who in their right mind is going to throw a fly at a 70-pound Was that with his Waves 2 boat? Do you remember that little boat he had? No, uh, no, this was with RT. He was was with RT. In in Key West, it was called Waves 2, and I don't know if it was like a 20-foot sea craft or a small boat. Yeah. And it had like a phone booth in the middle. Okay. And it was this this console. You have to ask him about it. But the console, he could get completely in the console. Right, yeah. And I'm sure it was just taking water over. I'm sure, yeah. I mean, it was a fully enclosed Like a telephone booth, yeah. Yeah. It was awesome. I love that boat. But yeah, I used to fish with Pat every now and then. Yeah, Pat's a good, good, good old boy. He's seventy-five, almost seventy-six years old. He's in better shape than I am. You ever He's see got that, an eighty-year-old uh, girlfriend who just 80? Eight, she's eighty. Rona's eighty, and she's stunningly beautiful for an eighty-year-old lady. She's been a model her whole life, wow. but she's very well preserved. You know, and a really she. Believe me, I've been out with Pat and Rona in RT's thirty-four yellowfin in six to seven foot seas and this woman is covered in blood <laughs> and she can't get a pilchard in the water fast enough <laughs> and i mean i'm holding on for dear life and she's just bouncing around the boat like nothing yeah and she's catching tunas and bonitas and i'm there with trying to throw a fly and catch some dopey thing and she's <laughs> out fishing me 10 to 1 that's but awesome. you know that's what happens when you're a feather chucker yeah you know <laughs> well that is what happens when you're a feather right, checker. Right, yeah, yeah, but Pat's a dear friend. I love him to death, and uh, I can't wait for I hope he's around till he's 180. Yeah, you know? no doubt. Do you all have any trips planned? You and well, Pat? this one with, oh, she's, with Chris Sheeter. Yeah, okay, Pat's cool. going to come down. and he, You know, he said, he goes, hell, this will probably be my last fat trip. How many Blue Marlin can I pull on anymore? And I'm going, yeah. He goes, I just want to get pictures. Yeah. You know? So that'll be your Yeah. That'll yeah. Be great. I, well, I did. I fished with him last year out there with Cheater on the 40-foot Whitaker, which was awesome. You know, we had five Blue Marlin, two sailfish, and a bunch of elephants, little yellowfins on fly. Wow. You know, we caught them at night, and then we'd have them for dinner. It was great. You just go near the fad. Chuck out some cedar plugs and boom, they come flying. There you go. And then you stop the boat and you throw a fly and boom, boom, it's one after another. But they're only like six, seven pounds. I mean, they're not big. Yeah. But they still, they get you into the backing. Sure. And I love that. Any, yeah. Anything that gets me into the backing, I like. Of course. <laughs> of course. Well, I think that uh, uh, that's great. Man, you got many stories. I, we could probably do a 20 hour podcast. I can. I've got the gift of gab. <laughs> what is it? If you can't dazzle them with brilliance, baffle them with bullshit. <laughs> so I do a little bit of both. All right. All right. Well, thanks for doing this with me. I really appreciate uh, it. Good luck on all your trips, man. Thank you. I really. Uh, I look forward to seeing you again. We'll do another one. We will. 
Come we on will. down to the fish camp in Jensen. I'd love to. Yep. I'd love to. We'll make it happen. Fantastic. Thanks, Rufus. You bet. See you.